0: Hi, this is DebtWire managing editor Andrew Ragsley, and we are up to episode 16 of the DebtWired series. This episode features deputy editor Reshmi Basu speaking with Peter Keo, managing director with Karl Marx Advisors. Peter has a 30 year track record of leading companies through operational performance transformations. This goes across a broad range of industries, including the automotive, chemicals, healthcare, financial services, building products, retail and telecom sectors. In our discussion, Peter shares some of the advice he's currently given to clients as they juggle a range of industry factors like commodity pressure, Biden's infrastructure bill, ordering bottlenecks for the holiday season, and a conversation is very focused on tight labor markets.
1: Peter, thank you so much for being here with us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me, I appreciate it.
1: So Peter, I have a question for you. Why are commodity prices surging? And what does the increase in pricing tell us about the economic recovery?
2: Yeah, you're spot on here. Commodity pricing certainly has surged this year. In fact, it's actually surged to a 10 year high. And, and you asked a great question about why, why, why are commodity prices surging? In my mind, it's a combination of multiple global supply chain disruptions coupled with the hangover from the COVID-related changes that have impacted the flow of goods and materials across the globe. And let me talk first about the, uh, the hangover from the uh, COVID-related changes to the supply chain. I think what happened in response, or well, what did happen in response to COVID was companies significantly slashed inventories, they reduced capacity and work, their workforce. And this led to a decrease in output across the globe. What happened was the supply chain really, the global supply chain needed to respond significantly to the significant diminished output. However, rather than reduce its network, as you would think, it actually faced a different demand profile, which was primarily driven by this global pandemic that we had and hence a global demand from the network to supply PPE on a more balanced global basis. And so basically what happened was the global supply chain reconfigured to meet this new global PPE demand. Now, if you fast forward to now, uh, what we've got is we've got a reconfigured global network that has been unable to respond quickly to the unexpected demand of what has become a more normalized global basis for uh, demand for product. Uh, and why? what well, I say by normalized global basis, more concentrated in Asia, Europe and US channels. And what we have is we've had an imbalance in usable containers across the globe. So that's the fundamental changes that we've seen in the global supply chain over the last year. Now, when we talk about supply chain disruptions, there's been many of them. Uh, The Chinese crackdown on emission production, which has impacted metal prices for nickel, steel, aluminum, etc. Uh, The Suez Canal blockage, uh, port closures in response to COVID outbreaks, gas supplies at a new time low in Europe, uh, the storms in the Gulf here that have impacted oil and resin production. You've got, as I've mentioned, the global container shortages. um, And then you've got this backup that we're seeing currently at shipping ports. All these are leading to an imbalance in the supply and demand and all impacting pricing. And so you're getting the surge in pricing and the surge in pricing is going to threaten inflation as the scarcity of products and services put added pressure on supply to meet demand. And and I think this growing scarcity threatens to be a catalyst for rising prices well into 2022. Now, you asked the question about what this tells us about the economic recovery. I think what it tells us was that we didn't anticipate the rapid demand coming out of COVID uh, and hence the scarcity of goods and materials. Which leads to inability to meet the demand, which has led to an increased pricing. So I think at the end of the day, the pricing is just a is just a, an outcome of of where the of the the strength of the globe of the uh, economic recovery.
1: So what sectors are being hardest hit by shocks to the commodities market, and is this because of the increase for demand?
2: Well, I think at this moment, all sectors have been hit by the rising prices. Uh, We use metal, uh, we use commodities through everything we use, other than services, everything we consume. And then when you look at the global market, you've got to realize that the markets are very much interconnected and any disruption in one region tends to have a knockoff effect elsewhere. You know, as I stated earlier, you know, the freight is stuck in the Suez Canal. Uh, You you know, uh, the, the coup in Guinea would send bauxite to a 13 year high. Uh, you've got the Gulf Gulf storms, etc. These all impact um, the global supply chain, sourcing, production, logistics, and it's hitting all sectors. Uh, Then when you layer on top of these events, you get this very tight labor market. You kind of have the perfect storm, you know, demand with the inability to effectively supply that demand. And then... And then when I talk about a tight labor market, uh, I'm not referring necessarily to the low level of unemployment, as that is really not the case. We have high levels of unemployment and all sectors have been hit with this tight labor market. And what I'm referring to is low levels of employable people. And I think that's the key here. There is a lack of both quantity of people and quality of people wanting to work. Uh, around the US, I see signs every day of uh, of the need to have staffing, you know, fast food places are not only offering higher wages, but in some cases they're offering bonuses. You see visible signs of hiring, help wanted signage everywhere, uh, work fairs that have poor turnouts. And even in businesses that can get resources, the next immediate challenge for them becomes the quality. And and for example, one of my clients, they have found over the last year that of, every, of all the new hires about 50% of the new hires are, are fired or terminated for t- performance related issues in the first 120 days. And when I asked these clients, well, should you just pay more to get a higher quality people? They do not believe it's about the money. They've already raised their wages. It's just around people willing to work and put in the quality of the work.
1: So we have very tight labor markets Do you think this commodity pressure is transitory or more permanent?
2: Uh, If you define permanent as going well into late 2022, it's my belief it's not transitory then and more permanent. Uh, As mentioned earlier, there is a significant balance of supply and demand. You get this overlay, as you just asked, around the challenge of the labor market. And so I think it's going to take some time to grind through the, the backlog that seems to be increasing at a rapid rate until demand actually meets uh or supply can meet demand so i i think that you're going to see pricing remain high pricing remain for quite a bit of time and um hence i think this is more permanent than it is transitory
1: Peter, how could this affect distressed activity given the impact on the bottom line and margins from companies?
2: Great question. To date, the pandemic really has not seen an increase in distressed activity, which really has surprised many. Um, The unexpected demand increase and the inability to supply to that demand certainly has placed significant pressure on businesses to deliver. For example, Amazon, which is highly respected in logistics space, is struggling to maintain their historical delivery levels for prime others i know are having to rebalance client delivery commitments on a daily weekly basis due to an outpacing demand which is lee which is due to longer lead times to source material and components and obviously challenge logistics so we're seeing right now no immediate impact on distress activity however i am experiencing a heightened level of lender nervousness, which is not necessarily apparently visible, and specifically nervousness around marginal businesses. And this has been driven by labor shortages, the inability or the questionable inability to pass through price increases, how soon these businesses will rebound from COVID, and if they do, what does the revenue curve rebound look like? And then layering on top of that, what future impacts could 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 result on demand and supply from further COVID-related outbreaks. Then if you layer into all these concerns, back to lender nervousness, just around working capital challenges. So I'm expecting there's going to be an uptick in distress as working capital needs grow, which then leads to default rates starting to climb. You, you get margins is going to be impacted. And then I think what happens is because of scarcity of materials and goods you get this inability to sell out of a financial challenge as supply constraints continue to impact revenue produced and what I mean by that is the demand may be there for these marginal businesses but their inability to actually produce to meet that demand and to sell more becomes very constrained which means it, it means they don't have the ability to fund their working capital needs and that's where I think you start to get the distressed activity increase.
1: So we have this confluence of labor shortage, commodity pricing, the threat of inflation, supply chain issues. Really how nervous should investors be about all of this? It seems like a lot of negatives in the market.
2: Yeah, I, I think investors should be nervous, uh, especially if they believe inflation is knocking on the door. They believe that the labor shortage will continue to be a challenge. and. Layer on top of that, that COVID is here for a long time and that the global supply chain still remains vulnerable to disruptions. I mean, the global supply chain has been vulnerable to disruptions even before COVID. Now you've just got, it's more delicate than it was and it's still trying to reconfigure itself back to pre COVID situation. So all of these factors, I think, contribute to uncertainty and with uncertainty and risk, and which leads to nervousness. So, rightfully so, they should be, they probably are nervous.
1: Peter, there's been a lot of news headlines about Biden's infrastructure bill, kind of the political hot topic these days. What do higher steel prices mean for the bill, given the administration's focus on bolstering American manufacturing?
2: Well, I think you've got two things here. You've mentioned political, and and I think I'm going to separate the infrastructure from bolstering US manufacturing. I mean, obviously, if you throw Oh, sorry, not throw. If you put more money into construction and and the infrastructure, that's certainly going to be a stimulus for U.S. manufacturing. But if we come back to your first part of that question about the impact of higher steel prices, in my mind, the impact of higher steel prices really means that you'll get less achieved with the same amount of funding. With higher prices, it just means there's going to be less infrastructure built because you have a higher cost. I also believe that there's also lead times, which I haven't mentioned are becoming lengthened, which means the ability to basically spend that money and and actually see it uh, generate infrastructure, there's going to be a delay in that. So essentially, you just get a delay in completing the work. Uh, and then you've got the labour shortages, uh, which also leads to a delay, both for manufacturing of the and also the construction. Now, So that in my mind is what higher steel prices mean, just less done. From an impact of manufacturing here in the States, apart from stimulating more more manufacturing in this country, I don't see a huge impact on encouraging manufacturing here. And I use the word encouraging because over the past 10 years, I think there's been a realization from US-based companies that when you look at offshoring product you need to assess the offshore supply from a total cost of ownership point of view not just the actual cost to manufacture an item and i think COVID has brought that to bear a lot more that realization as as um the the, the supply chain has really broken down uh, internationally and uh companies cannot source their product like they used to be so i think when you start looking at total cost of uh ownership for for a uh, your supply. When you start looking at it for certain industries, it certainly has become apparent to manufacture at home or closer to home is prudent and more effective and more cost effective. So I just think from a standpoint of your second part of the question, I, I think we're already along that road. I, I think the stimulus bill is just going to add add more more jobs for the labor market.
1: So you have potential delays in lead times, and then you also have this kind of tight supply chain. So is there any industry poised to quickly ramp up domestic production?
2: Uh, Domestically, I think all industries have been challenged with what we've talked about, both from a scarcity of resources and labor shortages. In a nutshell, I don't see any industry with a clear advantage over another as it relates to ramping up domestic production here. I think they're all created equal right now.
1: And Peter, are you seeing any relaxing in the supply chain? Are there any industries that do have it easier than others?
2: No, I don't see any relaxing right now. No matter where you look, there are just signs of challenges, chip supplies, new COVID strains, labor shortages, ships waiting to be unloaded, companies renting planes to ship internationally sourced products, extended lead times, unavailability of finished goods, the list goes on and on. So no, I don't see any relaxing right now uh, at all.
1: Peter, do certain companies have access to certain commodities or maybe the market power to dictate access, which creates a dynamic where other companies can't get the goods?
2: Most certainly, there are companies that have an advantage to access supply, but it's not through a system designed to use their market power to put others out of business. Uh, Many companies have sophisticated buying processes, including highly predictive S&OP processes they have well-managed supplier management systems they have developed strong collaborative management processes with their suppliers and all these provide a competitive advantage in sourcing you know additionally their purchasing power provides leverage to manage pricing somewhat but also to protect the supply chains and supply channels and all these advantages contribute to protecting the flow of goods through the through the supply chain um it's this reason that companies spend effort and cost to implement, you know, supplier management processes, they, they spend time on improving forecasting, and they become strategic partners with their suppliers. So from that standpoint, that they will be advantaged, but because they have more sophisticated ways of, of uh, managing their, their sourcing and, and, and working with their, their suppliers. Now one more thought though I mentioned earlier that there's liquidity challenge challenges for marginal business. I think this is also a scenario that's affecting access, you know, the ability to pay in a timely manner to your suppliers. You know when you when you think of supply chain most people think a supply chain is a one way and it's the flow of goods but when you look at a supply chain in its totality it's a two way flow. You've got flow of goods one way and you've got flow of funds back. And, and so when you look at just when you look at the flow of funds, when the flow of funds is impacted along the supply chain, it impacts all links along the supply chain. So any break in this flow of funds must be corrected to maintain a two-way flow, right? Products coming your way, cash going back. As such, I think what happens what will happen is the inability to pay vendors as committed will likely impact some businesses access to goods and materials, which will ultimately impact their ability to stay afloat.
1: And given the supply chain issues, and also this is a holiday ordering season, were supply meet demand for holiday shopping this year?
2: Yeah, you know, judging by the current environment and, and recent media coverage of container boats lying off the port in LA, I doubt the holiday season ordering experience is gonna be a pleasant one for a lot of people uh especially if they wait to do their shopping as they typically do which is starting november december and and hope and relying on online shopping and getting goods in two days uh you know as i stated earlier when amazon is facing delivery challenges i suspect that's going to impact everyone um around christmas time so to answer your question I do not think that the supply of goods is going to meet the demand for the holiday season.
1: Well, that's sad. It's going to be a lot of sad kids. Where do you see the most long-term pressure in the supply chain? Which industries do you think, Peter, are going to be the slowest to recover?
2: Oh, just, yeah. Uh, let me answer that in a sec. Back to your uh, disappointed kids. I also think there's going to be a lot of very frustrated parents as well. As far as the long-term pain in supply chain, you know, unfortunately, all the links of the global supply chain are in pain right now. You've got material shortages, you've got production challenges, you've got labor availability, transportation, and warehousing are being stressed, and none of these act in isolation. And as the saying goes, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And unfortunately, right now, all the links in the supply chain are in a state of weakness. And until these links are restored to pre-COVID levels of execution, Um, my view, this current situation is going to continue. As for the industries that will be the slowest to recover, tough question to answer, uh, given the uncertainty of when the supply chain will catch up to pre-COVID levels of execution, uh, if and when inflation becomes a character and to what level, does the labor market release from its current tightness? And then there's got this whole overriding thing of what other unexpected disruptions, whether they be political, climate, COVID related uh, impact the supply chain. So currently I think the lack of qualified labor appears to be an overriding theme across all industries. An example I read yesterday in the trucking industry, there is only one qualified driver for every nine job openings. And I suspect that kind of stat holds in a lot of, um, supply chain links right now. I think that the long-term pain in supply chain is just gonna be each link getting to a point where it can execute better.
1: And Peter, you noted that default rates are relatively low. What do you see as pressure points that could lead us to the next distressed cycle?
2: Well, typically distress cycles arise when you get a combination of liquidity challenges, uh, defaults climb and cost of credit increases. So from a pressure point standpoint, I think it's a margin decline, the inability to produce revenue due to scarcity of labor, materials, goods, and increased working capital needs.
1: And what advice are you giving to your clients?
2: Currently, uh, advising them to focus on strengthening their sourcing processes, uh, reinforcing their forecast to uh, ensure they have what they need to produce. Uh, focusing on pricing, especially how to pass through pricing, as, as as you mentioned at the start of this, with pricing surging, how do you uh, protect your margins, managing liquidity and taking care of the strategic customers for the long term.
1: Peter, thank you so much for joining us. That was a great conversation on the threats to the economy. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. Great to talk to you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to our podcast with Peter Keo, And don't forget to follow us on Spotify. Also check us out on the Wistia platform.